0: Well, it's good to be with you again, Colonial Baptist Church. I pray uh, that God is working in your heart, that you are uh, enjoying time with uh, family, and that you occasionally have opportunity to reach out to other believers in the assembly and find uh, help and comfort and encouragement with them. Uh, Today, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, and uh, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 18. So in Hebrews chapter 7 through 10, we have a great treasure. This is the longest doctrinal section in the book of Hebrews. And according to my estimate, at least, I think it's the single greatest reflection that we have on the nature of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's most definitely the most sustained treatment of Jesus's sacrifice for sins on the cross. The author has looked at the sacrifice of Jesus from many different Perspectives. He's considered it and its different glorious facets of it. He's looked at its priesthood, the, the covenant upon which it inaugurated, and the nature of the sacrifices itself. So I'd just like to review some of the high points through chapter 7 through 10 with you just for a moment. <clears throat> so it's this Jesus, the author tells us in Hebrews 7 and verse 16, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement, but the text says, but through the power of an indestructible life he's a priest on that basis it's this jesus who holds this his priesthood permanently because he continues forever the author tells us in chapter 7 verse 24 it's this jesus who saves to the uttermost since he always lives to make intercession for his followers Jesus is the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man in chapter 8. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. It's this Jesus who has appeared then at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it's this Jesus who will one day come again to save those who are eagerly looking for him. And then finally last week, the author tells us it was Jesus who, when he came into this world, said to the Father, sacrifices and offerings, you do not desire but a body you have prepared for me. In a way, this section of Hebrews is like a grand symphony. It's a lengthy narration composed of large sections woven together in unity to exalt Jesus and his sacrifice. Men and women, this is a majestic and masterful text, and it's been a privilege for us to look at it. Now, one might wonder how the author of Hebrews might bring it all to a close, how he would end this grand symphony about the work of Christ. And that's what we're going to look at today. In Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 18, we come to the end of the large doctrinal section, uh, the the end of this passage uh, that has explored the significance of Jesus' sacrifice. And before we look at these verses closely, I just want to give you two larger reflections on them very briefly, okay? So the first thing I want to point out to you and the way he ends this section is that he ends with scripture, scripture, and more scripture. Okay, so previously, last week, we saw in verses five through nine that the author quotes and then paraphrases Psalm 40, which describes Uh, originally David, but then Jesus as he comes into the world. He, He quotes and paraphrases Old Testament scripture in his argument. Then in the two paragraphs we'll look at today, in verses 11 through 14, he alludes to Psalm 110 in verses 12 and 13 when he talks about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God until his enemies become a footstool for his feet. And then finally, in the third concluding paragraph, in verses 15 through 18, he quotes Jeremiah 31 again in verses 16 and 17, when he talks about the new covenant promises found in that book. And so men and women, I think that this impulse from the author is instructive for us. The scriptures were an integral part of the author's way of thinking and reasoning with other people. For him, the scriptures had the authoritative and final word. And this impulse of the author must also be ours. I pray that this is our impulse, even if others would criticize us. So they say things like, you're gonna base everything that you believe and do, your guiding principles on a book? Well, isn't there some other authority that you'd rather listen to? And then if they get farther into considering, they say, not just a book, but an ancient book at that. Why would you trust and give authority to that to determine what you do? Or they say, you know, all it seems that you do in life when I ask you for advice or principles is it seems like you're always preaching to me and you're just giving me Bible verse after Bible verse. That's the criticism, but but I think we should say something like this. Well, I've got nothing else to offer you. No, I'll build everything on this The word will be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's what the psalmist tells me and that's what I will do. And so he closes this section with scripture, scripture and more scripture. Might we also reason that way? But then I wanna point out one other larger thing before we look closely at these verses and that is that the author traces earlier themes in this conclusion, but he offers more than just a recapitulation, a recap. A few months ago, I had the privilege of going to Richmond, uh, Virginia, to go to a concert, an Andrew Peterson concert. And I enjoy Andrew Peterson's music, especially for its depth and its reflection upon the scripture. As I went to this concert... Uh, uh, I enjoyed it because this particular concert, uh, the, the theme was him tracing the story of Scripture through the Old Testament up into the birth of Jesus. So in this concert, he has songs about the Passover, songs about Moses. He's got a song about deliverance from Egypt. He, he has, actually has a song about the genealogies found in Matthew, a very creative song about those genealogies. And he ends his concert with the song, Behold the Lamb of God. Very powerful song, and I, I thought it was all, all over, but uh, that's when he, he did one last song. The song is called The Theme of My Song. It's about three minutes long, and in this song, what he does is he brings together all the music that you've heard in the concert before. It's bits and pieces of songs earlier in the concert. He recaps all of the previous songs and weaves them into this unity. I think that's similar to what the author of Hebrews does in this passage. He recaps, but then he gives one final conclusion. And so having considered these larger themes and what's going on, I want to look closely at this text in its two movements. The first movement is found in verses 11 through 14. Let's look there and read them in our Bibles. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Here the author moves from Scripture, alluding to Scripture, to a final conclusion. He does that in both of these paragraphs. So in, in verses 11 through 13, he moves to Scripture, he reasons with Scripture, then he gives a conclusion in verse 14, a concluding statement. In verses 15 through 18, he'll do the same. The uh, citation of Scripture, it's verses 15 through 17, the final conclusion uh, is in verse 18. And so in verses 11 through 13, the author starts by alluding to Scripture. Here he makes a contrast between Jesus and every priest of the Old Covenant. So in verse 11, the author starts by looking at the old priests, and he gives many qualifiers to the sacrifices of the old priests. You could just put them all together, all these adverbs and qualifiers. And and so this is what he's saying. He says, they, these old priests, are standing every day. They're offering the same sacrifices, and they're doing so repeatedly. So for all intents and purposes here, what the author is saying is that every priest of the old covenant woke up every day and did the same things over and over again. I like how one author describes what the author of Hebrews is doing here. Uh, He says it this way. He says, he, the author of Hebrews, pictures the priest of that system piling up sacrifice after sacrifice as hard as they can go, but all in vain for they can never reach their goal. Okay, so what we need to understand from the author's perspective in verse 11 uh, here is that these sacrifices were inherently inadequate and repeating them every day did not bring completion to the worshiper. In our modern world, there's often a saying you can hear or people will use with each other. It's something like this. It is foolish to continue the same practices day after day and expect different results. I think that's what the author is saying to his original readers, the Jewish people here. Those sacrifices were obviously not securing a final and definitive forgiveness. That's verse 11. But then in verses 12 and 13, we learn the author's point is not done. In verse 12, he literally says at the beginning, and you could translate it this way, but this one or this man uh, had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins. So in contrast to the old priests who were always standing, Jesus' sufficient sacrifice, one-time sacrifice, empowers him to sit down. Now, perhaps you've heard preaching on this passage before and you've heard that great distinction and the the grand difference between the old priests who are standing daily, always walking around and ministering, and Jesus whose one-time act enables him to sit down at the right hand of God. Well, that's where in this passage, I think the author uh, alludes to scripture. And specifically, he's got Psalm 110 in his mind and verse one. Now he has uh, alluded and cited this passage in different places in Hebrews before. And so we've looked at it. I'll, I'll put the verse up there uh, on the slide just, just to remind you of this passage. But, um, but uh I think there is one new nuance that he gives here. The verse is this, Psalm 110, 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You remember this verse? Remember how we described this, that this verse is actually, it's written, it's coming from David, the author. And in this first part of the verse, he describes God as Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. And we said that is in reference to a future incarnate Jesus. God says to Jesus. Um, so we have seen that part of this verse before, I think particularly the first half of this verse. Uh, the second half, however, is something that the author has not mentioned to this point so far. In the second half, he says, sit at my right hand until I, that's God, does something for Jesus, until I make your enemies your footstool. So I want to I ask you why you think the author of Hebrews adds this second part here. Why would he mention God promising that Jesus can remain seated and that he will secure the uh, submission of Jesus's enemies. I would suggest that it's to put emphasis on the completed nature of Jesus's work in his one sacrifice. You see, men and women, Jesus did everything that he needed to do. It is finished and complete Thus the author here uses the scriptures. He uses the Old Testament to prove his point to his Jewish readers. All Jesus' work is done. And that leads to his conclusion in verse 14. Uh, And this conclusion he states very simply in the form of a proposition. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now this conclusion here is technically a reason or grounds that the author gives for saying that Jesus can be seated. He is seated because his single sacrifice has brought completion or perfection to the worshiper. Now, verse 14 is, is used in many different ways, and I think it's a very important verse, and I, I just want to look at it, and it's two parts. Uh, I'm going to take them a little bit out of order, though, for a reason here. If you're looking at verse 14, I want you to see that this single offering has done something for, for which group of people, the objects here? Well, the way the author describes them are all those who are being sanctified as the objects of Christ's one-time work, are the ones being sanctified. I think Hebrews 10 is helpful for us to teach us about something called sanctification. Uh, There is a sense in which we are sanctified when we are converted. If you look up to verse 10, for instance, you can see this initial sanctification that is ours. It says, and by that will, we have been sanctified. It's something that is done. We are set apart. However, in verse 14, we, we see that, it, that sanctification is not just a past thing. It's also a present, ongoing thing. This speaks of progressive sanctification. Jesus's one-time work is on the behalf of those who are in the process of being sanctified. So there's a sense in which we are sanctified. There's another sense in which God is still refining us, making us look more like Christ, separating us more from sin in our lives. That would be the objects of Christ's work. But I think the main point of verse 14 stresses that Christ's sacrifice has brought perfection or completion. Okay, now this is not complete and utter uh, you know, uh, victory over all sin, sinless perfection. This is simply, I think, the author' saying that what Christ's work has done it, is, it has fitted us to be completed worshipers of Jesus Christ and of the Father. So The first part of this verse, I think, emphasizes the results or the effects of Christ's death on us. So look again at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. He has brought completion. He has fitted for all time those who are being sanctified. I think this speaks of Jesus' work in justification. We are righteous in Jesus, hence complete, fully able and worthy to worship God because of His righteousness to us." The men and women, I think this is an important verse, and it is for uh, it will protect us from dangerous views uh, and ways of thinking. There's some people who think that they have to do stuff to come into the presence of God and to be able to worship him. They think that it's, it's in sanctification even, that it is built on the basis of their own works, what they contrive, what they do, what they have to offer to God, even in their private times of worship. So these, these sort of people, they, they have no sense of confidence or assurance that, that they are right with God. They live in fear and are motivated by fear to attain more on their own. I think this is not only true of genuine followers of Jesus Christ, this is true of many uh, men and women who are trying to gain or earn merit with God on the basis of their own righteousness. I think a classic example of this was Martin Luther, of course. And I, I know that many of you probably are familiar with his conversion. But uh, before his conversion, there were many of these different times and ways where he would try to contrive a way to, to gain acceptance by God. Remember, Luther was a monk and he was a very religious man. He was motivated to please God. Remember reading one, one example, one classic example in his life that, that pictures this. There's a time when he was traveling to Rome and he visited this holy location where, according to Catholic tradition, uh, they believed that Jesus had walked on some stairs that were transported from Jerusalem to Rome. This holy site is called the Scala Sancta, the holy stairs. And so Luther, upon visiting these stairs, climbed every stair on his knees kissing every step, quoting scripture on every step, praying on every step to seek God's favor. At this time, Luther was still living in constant fear that he hadn't done enough, that he hadn't prayed enough, that he hadn't confessed enough, that he hadn't engaged others enough with Christ. So Luther prays, and he weeps, and he kisses, and he prays some more. And he did these sorts of things until he realized one day in Romans that salvation and forgiveness come through faith in Christ's work alone, not our own. So we can look at the example of Luther and we can say, okay, he had it all wrong, but yet, yet many of us go to God this way in our private devotional time. We go bargaining with him, we're bartering with God, offering our own works to appease him. But I think others who reflect upon what verse 14 is saying in the completed work of Jesus Christ that makes us perfect or complete to be worshipers, others choose to go to Christ on the basis of his sacrifice alone. They know that all of their junk, right, all of their sin from their past, all of the immoral thoughts and actions of their teen years, all of the lying in their business practices or on their tax forms, their marital infidelity, their hours and hours of sinful indulgences on the Internet, all their sinful imaginations, all the gossip and the slander about their parents or their neighbors, all their coveting of others' houses and cars and things is covered by one single sacrifice for all time. And it's that sort of person I I encourage each one of us to be, not only for salvation, but in sanctification, And that's the author's first and final movement here in this passage. It is to proclaim that Christ's sacrifice brings completion. It perfects you so that you can worship God. It fits you to offer acceptable worship to God. And so do you know that no contriving, no bartering, that you can offer to God in secret prayer can achieve forgiveness. And there's there's no act of worship, whether it's the stairs or prayers or church attendance, that God will accept as payment for your sin. Here the author of Hebrews is making this point with his Jewish readers. It's time for them to walk away from Old Covenant worship in Jerusalem at the temple. They need to close out that chapter in their lives. So he pleads with them. You've got to settle this in your heart. However you can, you must get closure and walk away from the old worship. It's done. And you are only complete in Christ. So this is his first movement to emphasize that Christ's sacrifice brings completion to the worshiper. The second movement builds on that and we'll explore it in verses 15 through 18. Let me read them for you now. It says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is a covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Here the author works from Scripture to a conclusion again in this final paragraph. Uh, I want you to look first of all at verse 15 and the way he introduces the Scripture here. Here. The way he introduces it is is intriguing. I love how the author uh, refers to the Bible at different places throughout his writing. Look at verse 15. It says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, and then comes the citation. Here, I want to point out something about the way the author will uh, introduce quotations. He says through this passage that the Holy Spirit bears witness to his original readers. Uh, Earlier on in the book, I I love it, in chapter 3, in the middle of that chapter, he introduces a passage in a very similar way. He says, as the Holy Spirit says. There in that chapter, I, I think what he revealed to us is what he believed about the Bible, The author believed that the Old Testament scriptures were sourced in the spirit of God, that they came from him. Here, I think it's similar, but maybe just a little bit different. Here he says that the Holy Spirit is using scripture, Jeremiah 31, a quote from Jeremiah 31. He's using scripture presently with his readers to bear witness to them. The Holy Spirit here uses this text and speaks through it to believers in the present. And so I think this reveals to us what the author believes about the living nature of the word. It's a lot like Hebrews 4.12, what he says there. It's living and active. Here he says, the Holy Spirit is testifying to you about it right now. After this introductory statement, he then quotes this passage, Jeremiah 31, in verses 16 and 17. In these two verses, he reminds us of the new covenant promises that God gave to his people, specifically two of these promises. One, that he would put his laws in their minds and uh, in their hearts. And then two, that he would remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Now, we've considered this passage before. It was found in Hebrews 8 in a fuller form. Here he's just, he's just uh, kind of just taking a few of the pieces together. There is one thing he adds that we didn't consider in chapter 8, and that he, he adds this, this phrase, this word, lawless deeds to the passage. The words lawless deeds refer back to the Old Testament scriptures. And uh, the word that's used here is used often in the Old Testament scriptures to describe wickedness. I find it in many English translations to be translated as, uh, as wickedness or rebellion. It speaks literally of casting off God's laws Okay, so God made his will known to you in his laws, his moral laws and rules. But what this sin is, it's just casting it out, it's setting aside, it's stepping over it. And so, because of Christ, what the author tells us here is that God chooses not to remember sins and acts of wickedness like that, lawless acts, anymore. That's his citation of scripture. And that leads to one more concluding proposition or point in verse 18. So look with me again at verse 18 at at a very important verse. It says, where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. The word these refers back to lawless deeds and sins in the Jeremiah quote. These are the things that God determines never to remember again because of Jesus. But I want you to see that verse 18 is a really important verse. I think it's important grammatically because it is clearly the conclusion of verses 15 through 17. But I might argue that it could be more than a conclusion to those verses. This could be a conclusion to the grand whole symphony about the cross of Jesus. So the author of Hebrews wants his readers to know something. He wants them to know that Christ changes everything for them since his work perfects his followers through the cleansing that comes from his sacrifice, the old forms of observance are no longer necessary. In other words, offerings are no longer required or needed when sins have already been forgiven. So what he's saying to his readers is something like this. Do not go back there. You must find closure to that. You can't go back to your traditions and your comfortable religious practices and offer those old sacrifices for if and when your sins are truly forgiven, there's no sacrifice needed anymore. As we close out this passage in this grand conclusion here, I couldn't help but think of many conversations that I've had with prospective members who've come to Colonial Baptist over the years. There are many of these conversations I hold as very dear in my own memory. I remember talking with several, several people throughout the last three or four years who chose to walk away from their mainline churches, who weren't preaching and teaching the sacrifice of Jesus as the only means of salvation. I remember several of these conversations where people said things like this to me. I went to that church for years and years and years. I'd go every week and I never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or I remember re- reflecting on someone just in one of the most recent classes that I went for years and years and years. And, you know, they just didn't go through the text of Scripture and show us how to read it and understand it and how to apply it to our lives. And so as I think of these conversations that I have, these, these people who have joined our church, they've left traditions, they have left comforts. They chose even in some ways to walk away from relationships so that they could come to a place, a group of believers assembling who would exalt the sufficient work of Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. May I say this, Colonial Baptist Church, may may this always be true of us. As we close out this section on the cross of Christ, may it be permanently ingrained upon our consciences that forgiveness comes only through Jesus Christ alone. And that even while I attempt to serve him in sanctification, I must know that it's not on the basis of my own works that I will be accepted as a fit or worthy worshiper of Christ. No, it's the basis, uh, it's, it's on the basis of one single sacrifice offered thousands of years ago that is powerful enough for all time to save and to complete any person who will trust in it alone. I pray that's true of us. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful, Lord, uh, we have taken several weeks to look at the cross, to look at the sacrifice of Jesus. Like the author of Hebrews, we have followed every argument. We have, we have, we have looked at every section and uh, we've attempted, I, I've attempted to proclaim how this section is, is woven together in a unity that exalts Jesus. I pray, Lord, that this this unity, this doctrinal section would inform the way that we live. I pray that it would inform the way that we go before God this week in our private go before you this week in our private devotional time. And what we what we bring to offer you We see that what we bring is something that's already been accomplished. It's already done. What we bring is Jesus and his one-time act that covers all of our sins. And so, Lord, uh, help us to live in light of that reality this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.